Grab some bacon on a biscuit and let's go. We're burning daylight. Welcome to the Frontier Freedom Hour with Jeff Hunt. Sponsored by Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University. Now, here's Jeff Hunt. Friends, welcome back to the Frontier Freedom Hour. This is Jeff Hunt, the chief wagon boss of this operation here. Uh, Taking a break from Colorado. I'm out in one of my very favorite places. Literally Paradise, USA, Coronado, California. Hanging out with the mayor himself, Richard Bailey, two-term mayor who just finished heading out towards Mount Everest, literally Mount Everest. And I, I wanted to get a sense of, of what that was like. Uh, he and I are both ultra runners. We've done some of the same races. We like those really challenging, you know, push it all the way to the limit type of athletic activities. And uh, so I, I'm on vacation, wanted to swing by, hang out with the mayor, and I wanted to hear how Everest went. So Richard Bailey, thanks for being on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me back. So, so let's start at the beginning. You said this was your childhood dream. You wanted to go climb Mount Everest. So walk us through the planning, walk us through the trip, and then what happened out there. So this is a bit of a story that starts back all the way since 1998, 12 years old. And my mom took me to go see an IMAX movie titled Everest. It was narrated by Liam Neeson, and it it chronicled the an earlier ever season that turned out to at that time be the most deadliest. And this is what into thin air, the you know very famous book was written about on that season. That's right. <laughs> and ever since I was 12 years old and ever since I saw that movie in the back of my mind, I just knew that I one day would have to go attempt to summit Everest. And then as you mentioned, like you and I've developed a, a love of endurance sports so fast forward 20 plus years, and here I am sitting in my room around COVID, everyone's locked up, and I'm watching another documentary about Everest, right? Because people that are Everest enthusiasts, they, they consume everything that comes in front of them, articles, radio programs, podcasts, uh, documentaries. And it occurred to me, I had not actually taken any steps towards actually fulfilling this childhood dream of mine, just always been a thought. And so middle of COVID, completely locked up. And I said, you know what? I need to take the first step. I know nothing about mountaineering. I don't know much about the Himalayas. So why don't I book a trip to the Himalayas and go hike to Everest Base Camp? And that's where it really started to become real. Wow. So uh, uh, there's expenses. You have to get gear. You have to plan all this. How long did it take to kind of lay this all out? And then how long was the trip there? And then walk us through how you had to get to base camp, right? So imagine we don't know anything about the whole journey of it. So it was about a three-year process from thinking, all right, I'm going to go hike to base camp which is a wonderful hike that any one of most physical abilities could do. Um, So here's what the process looks like. You fly into Kathmandu. When you arrive at Kathmandu, your guide or someone from your expedition team comes into your hotel room. They check all your gear to make sure you have the, the right gear. And all in all, there's about 70 pieces of gear that you end up bringing. I mean, ice axes, crampons, harness, various carabiners, Jumar, um, 
you know, multiple, multiple different types of socks, like socks at, you know, for base camp, socks for mid mountain socks for your summit push. Um, and so all these things add up. And if you don't have one piece of this equipment, it very well could be the end of your summit bid. And so they check all that before you leave. Like an actual Sherpa. Yes. Like an actual <laughs> Sherpa. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. An actual Sherpa. And, and then after they do the gear check, you spend one more night in the hotel and then you take a helicopter to the trailhead. The trailhead is in this little town called Lukla. Lukla is best known for being the gateway to the Himalayas and also where the world's most dangerous airport resides. Um, and because of the altitude, because of the severe weather patterns, the mountainous region, and the fact that the runway is incredibly short and actually at a really steep incline to help planes slow down before they run into another mountain, um, it's, it's an adventure just to get to the trailhead. Once you're at the trailhead, it's a 40-mile, seven- to eight-day hike to base camp. Um, and you might think to yourself, hey, 40 miles, that doesn't sound like very far, and it's not. But you're covering, you're gaining so much altitude that you have to take it really slowly. A lot of people succumb to altitude sickness just on the hike to base camp. So you have to take it very slowly, have to be eating a lot, have to be drinking a lot. But then you finally arrive at base camp. And after you arrive at base camp, it is like you're on another planet. Uh, most people might not know this, but base camp itself is actually on a glacier. Um, so a lot of people, when they think of base camp and they see the pictures from base camp, you have all of this uh, black rock and the tents are on these black rocks. But when you wipe the black rocks away, it is blue ice. So less than a few inches down uh, is the actual glacier. So you're sleeping on a glacier uh, for your entire duration that you're on the base camp. Um, once you're actually at base camp, and a couple, a couple facts about base camp. So base camp itself is about a mile and a half long. So it's a very long campground. And this most recent season, there were approximately uh, 40 teams, so 40 expedition teams, and people representing countries from, uh, from over 90 countries uh, were there at Everest Base Camp trying to summit. All in all, there's about 450 climbers and about 1,000 support Sherpa. Um, within all of base camp. So it's a, it's a pretty gnarly place to be. Uh, your very first night at base camp, um, you know, speaking from experience here now, my very first night at base camp, um, you're, trying to get a, you're trying to sleep, but you're so excited about what's going on and the conditions aren't great to sleep in. And then you hear these loud cracks, boosh, whoosh. You're, like, you're not sure if you're dreaming or not. You're like, what the heck was that? You're trying to orient yourself. And you hear it again a few other times throughout the night. And it finally dawns on you that, well, those are avalanches that are happening at least half a dozen to a dozen every single night. And you hear them and they're all around you. Now, base camp itself is located in a very safe location. So you don't necessarily need to be worried about getting you know, your tent bulldozed by snow in the middle of the night. But also in the back of your mind, you're, kind of, you're, you're starting to think, hey, most of the climbing we do happens in the very early morning hours between like midnight and six to seven a.m. And the reason it happens so early is because that is when the mountain is most stable. It's only after the sun comes up, it starts melting the snow, melting the ice, do things become even more chaotic, even more precarious. And so when you're lying on your sleeping bag, like on this little mattress, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I just heard a dozen avalanches happen, and you're telling me this is the time it's most stable? It's, uh, it, it definitely, it, it makes you think. It certainly makes you think. And your first couple of days at base camp, 
you start getting kind of familiar with the environment, your your mind starts to click over into kind of like survival mode, where you start forgetting about, to the greatest extent possible, you start forgetting about everything going on at home and start just kind of focusing on, all right, do I have enough to eat? Have I been drinking enough? How does my body feel? How's my mind feel? How's my breathing? And you then start going through some basic trainings through the ice fall, uh, walking across ladders, uh, climbing up ice walls, and just kind of refreshing your skills. And then it's time to leave. So after about three days of base camp, um, you'll set out at about sometime between midnight and 1 a.m. through the Kumba ice fall. To get through the Kumba ice fall, it takes anywhere from six to eight hours. The Kumba ice fall is definitely the most dangerous part of the whole climb. Um, the reason it's the most dangerous is because you have these very large blocks of ice uh, the size of skyscrapers uh, that are kind of hanging above you. And at any moment, those things could break. And when they break, if you're in their path, it's game over. Uh, and there's just nothing you can do about it. It's a risk you just have to accept and just try to get through the ice fall as quickly as possible. Now, six hours doing anything is not quick. Uh, so you're just exposed to a significant amount of danger for a significant period of time. But you're really just trying to get through that ice fall before that sun comes up and starts melting that ice. So you make your way through the ice fall, sleep at camp one, go to camp two, spend the night, go up to camp three, touch camp three, come back down, spend the night at camp two, spend the night at camp one, and then make your way back to base camp. And that's your first rotation. Wow. Um, and then just to kind of speed things up, after you've done that, you're waiting for your weather window. So most people might not know this, but you can only climb Everest in the month of May. And the reason you can only climb Everest in the month of May is because for most of the year, Everest is so tall that the jet stream actually pummels the summit of Everest with 200 mile per hour winds. It's only in the month of May that the jet stream moves away from the summit. And now you're just waiting for that weather window where it might be anywhere from uh, 24 hours long to a week and a half long, and you just don't know. So once that weather window hits, then you start making your way to the summit. We're talking with Mayor Richard Bailey, the mayor of Coronado, California, about his recent trip to try to climb Mount Everest. When we come back, I want to get a sense of what happened uh, out there, uh, and we're going to cover a whole host of issues. He's working on the homeless issue that San Diego is facing, which is very similar to what we're facing in Colorado. Uh, we have a new mayor, Mayor Mike Johnston, whose uh, new brilliant idea is to bring in cleaning ladies to clean the homeless camps, not move them, just to clean them up a little bit. Tight, tidying them up is kind of the phrase that, that we're using, but it, it's a real problem. We've had a massive increase in the amount of homeless in the city of Denver, we're spending over $200 million to try to deal with it, and it's only getting worse. So we're going to cover homeless issues. And then there's a sewage issue from Tijuana that is affecting the beaches of San Diego. I mean, seriously, shutting down some of these beaches. And so how is the mayor dealing with that? So not only are we going to cover Everest, not only, we're going to cover these issues like homelessness and border issues that um, are affecting the United States of America. So you're going to want to stick around. You're listening to the Frontier Freedom Hour, sponsored by the Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University. We'll be right back after these messages. <laughs> 